So today we're looking at 1 John 2, 12 through 17, and it has nothing to do with May Day. Uh, But the title for today's message is Worldliness. I know everybody's favorite topic. Uh, Last week, we looked at how Christ is our advocate and what that means for us when we sin. And we also looked at a diagnostic test that helps us to know that we know the Father. In today's passage, we're going to see how John gives additional assurance by proclaiming more gospel truths to his readers. And we're also going to unpack the idea of worldliness and what exactly that means and looks like. Right now, I'm reading a really interesting book called Polishing the Dragons. And it's written by the man who directed uh, a film that is displayed in the China Pavilion at the Epcot uh, Park in Walt Disney World, part of the World Showcase there. There's this China Pavilion. There's pavilions from all over the world, all sorts of countries, displaying information about their country. Uh, It's a 360-degree film shot on nine cameras in like a circular 360 degree mechanism and so when you watch the film uh, there's nine screens and it's a 360 degree movie theater pretty cool Uh, you are standing the entire time and there's rails that you can kind of lean against uh, but be careful you can get dizzy Um, and it's it's an interesting movie Um, and the book I'm finding to be really interesting as he details how the film was made in the early 1980s in China And just what an interesting place that that was during that time. Um, At that point in time, China really didn't have a lot of connection to the rest of the world. And we know what China is like today. But at that time, it was even far more uh, just shut, shut in. But he chronicles the various locations and the troubles that they experienced. And also the interesting things that the crew saw throughout their journey throughout China. In one chapter, he wrote about their experience in a place, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing this correctly or not, but called Lhasa, the one-time home to Tibetan Buddhism. And this is what he writes. Life in the town of Lhasa must have been a hard-scrabble existence. Buildings of three stories were made of large white bricks held together by crude mortar. They looked as if one good quake would level them. The streets were full of pilgrims who had devoted part of their lives traveling to this sacred place, some lying prostrate in the streets to pray. One man had fashioned leather pads to his hands so that he could lie down flat on his stomach, sliding his hands out in front of him until his face touched the roadway. Then he'd slide back up to his knees, move a foot or so to one side, then do it all again. He was circling the entirety of the Potala Palace in that manner. This is religion. And as we're going to look at today, really what this is beyond just, quote-unquote, religion, is that this is worldliness. And so there's two points I want to draw out this morning as we look at the text. First is gospel realities, and the second is worldly illusions. And so let's read our passage, 1 John chapter 2, 12 through 17. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him, who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning, Lord, that we can have a relationship with you, that we can call you Father. We thank you for all that Christ has done for us. Lord, as the song that Nate was singing earlier says, all I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. Nothing in this life satisfies. Nothing in this life really matters in comparison to him and to knowing you. Lord, help us to see that this morning from the text. Lord, help us to see all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Gospel realities. So at first glance, as we kind of look at these two paragraphs, uh, maybe we kind of look at them and say, these don't really seem to go together, these two thoughts. In the first three verses, John is reminding us of some gospel realities or truths to encourage us as, as the reader. The second paragraph, which we'll look at in a moment, is an exhortation against loving the world. And as we take a closer look at this this morning, I just want us to see that I really believe that they really do complement each other quite beautifully. Uh, as, we, as we look at it, I hope to draw that out. Verses 12 through 14 kind of read like a song. There's a rhythm to it and a pattern to it. A repetition of a couple of the lines there in verses 13 and 14 kind of sounds like a modern-day chorus where it's just driving home the point of the song. Right now in my home, we are listening to a lot of children's music again. Um, And, you know, one of the reasons you listen to those early songs, you know, especially good worship songs that are uh, maybe simplified a little bit musically for kids and stuff like that, one of the reasons you listen to them is you want to get those truths in their hearts. You want them to sing those songs. You want them to hear those things and be encouraged. Uh, you know, as a songwriter myself, you write a chorus with the idea of it being sung. So you want it to be simple enough where you can repeat it and, and all that good stuff. And if you write songs like they do uh, in modern times today, you'll repeat the bridge about 48 times. And um, Yeah, sorry. <laughs> But I think John writes this passage this way. I don't know if it really was a song. Maybe it really was a song that he just put down uh, on paper. But uh, I think he writes it this way so that these gospel realities can be driven home to the reader. He wants these realities to get deep into the reader's hearts. And so let's read those verses one more time, uh, 12 through 14. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So John addresses here little children, which, as we looked at last week, we know is kind of this term of endearment that he uses for the entirety of the believers there at the church he's writing to. He writes to fathers and young men. And I think while John is addressing three different groups here, um, it's probably best to see him addressing the the whole audience and proclaiming these gospel realities that are true of all who have believed. 
As I mentioned in the introduction, we've seen over the last couple of weeks some tests, some diagnostics that John has given to help the believer, to have assurance, and, and to know what's going on on the inside. These are not conditions to know God, but because the believer already knows God, this is the way we can see the fruit that is in keeping with belief in Christ. And so here John is speaking words of comfort to his dear children to encourage them that they are genuine Christians. So first he gave some tests that would help to uh, give assurance. Now he's just giving some words that are just meant to encourage assurance. He's not trying to drive pietism. That's a phrase I've used before, a word I've used before. And that just means a hyper-inward focus, a hyper-obsession with your progress in your relationship with the Lord. He doesn't want us constantly engaging in deep self-inspection, just obsessed with how am I doing, but rather his desires to encourage the believer to uh, see what is true of their standing in Christ. Inspection is good and helpful at times, but if it becomes our obsession, if it becomes our kind of the state of our existence, uh, you will only be looking internal. And the eyes of faith look externally. They look to Christ. Consider the audience that is receiving this epistle for a moment. It's likely many of them are hurting and left in doubt after having a faction of their church leave in a very divisive manner. This faction cast doubt on those who remained, claiming that those who had left had a truer knowledge, that they were enlightened, that they had the light of God. Yet this faction denied that they were sinners, and they denied their need for a Savior. When John writes this letter, he does so to give those who remained encouragement and assurance because of the realities of the gospel and what the gospel produces in people. He's not writing to unsettle his audience. He's not writing to cause them uh, to become hyper-focused on their performance, but that they would find rest in Christ And then he encourages them to good works. He encourages them to love one another. So what are the gospel realities that we see here? There are three. The forgiveness of sins, fellowship with the Father, and victory over the evil one. Let's briefly look at each of these. First, the forgiveness of sins for his name's sake. What does this mean? We say it often, but the good news is that your sins are forgiven because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In doing this, uh, Jesus, as we saw last week, satisfied the wrath of God against sinners. He's our propitiation, and he brought about reconciliation. Those who believe in Christ have received by faith this forgiveness, and John says that it's for Christ's namesake. Our salvation is a work of Christ and not of ourselves. It's totally done by him. And this points to God's sovereignty in our salvation. I want to read to you from 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. The cause of our salvation is only the grace of God. It's given to us in Christ Jesus. And it's for his name's sake. Second, we see that we have fellowship with the Father. John writes, you know him who is from the beginning. 
And this speaks of more than just a knowledge of someone's existence. There's knowing somebody, you know, maybe you know who somebody is. And then there's truly knowing someone, knowing them uh, as a friend, as a, as a family member, or, you know, husbands and wives as the intimate relation you, relationship that you have with one another, to truly know someone. So this intimate knowing is what John is talking about here in these verses. And then he expands that idea to mention that the one who we know is the father. And notice all the familial language here. Children, fathers, the father. The one who is God is not some distant, obscure uh, being. He is now our father. Through adoption into the family of God, we have not only been forgiven, but now have come to know God as Father. And third, we have victory over the evil one. Not only do the young men that John addresses here have victory over the evil one, but he says that they're also strong and that the word of God abides in them. Our strength and ability to have victory lies in the work of Christ. He is victorious, and we now share in that victory. Their confidence and strength were not in themselves, but in Christ Jesus. The next part of this is that the word abides in them. And by grace, the word will abide in you as well. So abide in Christ. Paul exhorts us in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So let the word of God abide in you. Let it Remain in you as you remain in Christ. These gospel realities that John is giving to his readers are anchor points for all believers. These are the great truths that the gospel gives to grant assurance and confidence. And we can use these truths to encourage one another, to lift one another up, to exhort one another, encouraging yourself in your own heart, reminding yourself of all these amazing, wonderful truths that you have. Romans 10 tells us that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so encourage each other with these things. They also serve to connect what was said in the verses before, what we looked at last week and what follows. To love one another, as we were encouraged last week, you are going to need to be anchored in some marvelous realities in order to accomplish it. Because that is not the natural uh, proclivity, to use a big word. I don't use that word often. It's not the natural proclivity of the believer. It's something that is supernatural, something that is done by the Holy Spirit. You have these wonderful resources available to you, believer, to enable you to love one another. You are a forgiven child of God. And in order to avoid the illusions of worldliness, you are going to need these gospel realities to anchor yourself into And to empower you to stand. And so let's look at worldly illusions. Let's look at these things that John is admonishing against here. And we're going to look at verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's unpack all of this here. So the world that John is writing about is not the natural world. He's not writing 
about humanity or the created order. He's speaking of the systems of the world. Anything that is in opposition to God's ways. When John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, he is specifically talking about the unbeliever, the one walking in darkness. But this is an area that I think also affects the believer. Otherwise, John would not have given this pastoral warning uh, to believers who are reading this letter. He's giving this warning so that believers would not give in to these lesser loves like the unbeliever does, but to be filled with the love of the Father. Now, we're all likely familiar with the term worldliness and worldly. If you've been around Christendom in the last hundred plus years, uh, this is a pretty common thing that's preached against, and so I, I assume that you've at least heard the term. And the way that worldliness is often thought of is certain outward behaviors or actions. You know, things like drinking alcohol, smoking, watching certain movies, or just movies in general. There was a a preacher back in the 80s that encouraged everybody just to throw away their TVs. Is this really what John is getting at? I think this idea of worldliness is mistaken. John is speaking here in this section of what it is to give ourselves over to or to be consumed by Things, and more specifically, systems of the world that are temporary and transient. Things that have no lasting or eternal value. He's not commanding us to reject outright any or all aspects of culture, much of which can reflect the goodness and gifts of God. And so we practice the idea of receive, reject, and redeem. And so as Christians, we want to be wise stewards with the things that we interact with and the things that we have. So we can receive many things from the culture around us. There are entertainment choices, food, material things that can simply be received. You know, you don't have to go and and find a car that has a cross etched into it. You don't have to buy sneakers that have crosses on them. You don't have to go and find Christian mints. Because, yes, they sell those in Christian bookstores. Little packets of, uh, you know, after-dinner mints that have little crosses or doves etched into them or something. You don't need those. Certs will do. But there are some choices that we know we can reject as having no intrinsic value to the life of a believer. Some of these things have no value to the life of anyone, and that's clear. Pornography is something that has no benefit to anyone's life, only harm. And it can definitely cause much harm. And so that should be rejected outright. There's nothing that can be redeemed other than the people, which is a message for another day. (laughs) But there's nothing of value there for the life of a believer. And, And I chose that one specifically, but there's a, you know... We're not trying to make a list of all the things that we automatically have to reject. We need to use discernment, trust the Holy Spirit in that to lead us. But there's a lot of other things that we can redeem as well. Now, this requires a bit of careful thought. And it requires that we view things in culture through the lens of the gospel. It requires that we be discerning believers and and be careful about the things that we use and, and utilize. And so just ask How can this uh, benefit my family? How can I and my family participate in this and use it for God's glory? Now, many have outright rejected much, if not most, of the culture of the day as being worldly. 
and therefore having no value to our lives. And I believe that God has, through common grace, given us many wonderful things to enjoy. But all things, including good things, can become idols if we place too high of a value on them. And that's important for us to remember, that even good things, things that uh, promise value to our lives, can become idols when we put too much of a value on them. So worldliness is not simply the external things that we reject. It's loving or idolizing thoughts, values, or systems that are contrary to God's word. It's living for the temporal pleasures of this life, the spirit of the age. These things are fleeting and passing, as we'll see in these verses. Author Tim Challies describes it this way. It's a way of thinking and living that rejects God's rule. It is enthusiasm for the temporal and apathy for the eternal. And I like this part. It is living as if this world is all there is. Worldliness for an unbeliever is to live as an unbeliever. Dead in trespasses and sins with hearts that are churning out idols and lesser loves. It is to be a slave to the principles of the world living but not really alive enslaved by fallen desires or cravings, as the text says, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, or literally, the arrogance of life. This arrogance of life is to live as if there is no need for God, that he doesn't matter and I do not need salvation. The unbeliever doesn't know that they're in darkness, and the light of life, the truth, is not in that person. So telling an unbeliever to stop behaving a certain way is like telling a dead person to stop being dead. The unbeliever needs to be born again. The unbeliever needs a new heart. And this describes what we all once were. This is who we once were as well. And so this is not simply just an us versus them thing. This describes what we all once were. So John writes this warning to believers, and so we must assume that worldliness can and does have an impact on believers. And I think we see this in a few ways, and often we may not even recognize it as such. And so I want to draw out just a few of the ways we see worldliness affecting the believer. It can be obvious, uh, you know, where we use the means of the world to attract people to our churches, whether through music, preaching, or programs, we present a you-centered theology that tickles our ears and appeals to the masses, promising a better life, wealth, and success. This is empty and meaningless. And for many of us, it's often very clear what that is. The more subtle and more dangerous way worldliness affects the believers through what Paul in Galatians calls a returning to the elementary principles of the world. And I'm from Minnesota, and we say elementary not elementary. So this is when we don't trust the gospel and return to our striving and working. Galatians 4, 8, and 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by the, that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? So Paul wrote the book of Galatians to correct a church that had strayed from the gospel. Some people from Jerusalem called Judaizers 
uh, came in and proclaimed to the believers there that the cross was good. It was good. But you also needed circumcision. You also needed to keep the law in order to truly be saved. And so Paul had preached the gospel to the Galatians. They had received it with joy. But now we're turning back to law-keeping in order to uh, sustain their walk with the Lord. And Paul was essentially calling this worldliness because they were using the world systems. So the world systems, the system that we are probably most familiar with is just simply a concept of work and reward. We labor and receive a payment. In school, you work hard and you get good grades. Sometimes. In vocation, you work hard and receive a paycheck and hopefully advancement. Sometimes. Yet the gospel is opposite of all of that. Jesus did the work and we receive the benefit. We receive eternal life. We receive the forgiveness of sins. We receive that fellowship with the Father. Religion says that there is more to it. It promises that if you keep striving and working, that you'll finally make your way to God, that you'll finally make your way to peace, to rest. But you've got to work to get there. It looks like the man that I shared about at the beginning from Lassau, crawling around on his hands and knees, bound by religion, bound by worldliness, trying to do enough of whatever that is to somehow find peace in his soul. It's to live as though all of this, all, all that we have, everything uh, that we talk about every single week from the word of God depends on our performance. This is to live in a worldly way. This is worldliness. This is the elementary principles of the world, or the spirit of the age that Paul is writing about. Another form of worldliness is when we try to fight the world through the means and devices of the world. So fighting worldliness with worldliness. This is when we pursue the temporal things of this world and fight any opposition to what I desire with the same methods that the world offers. So what do I mean? There are a lot of things that are fine and even good for us to care about, and and honestly, many areas where we probably feel called to serve in that that arena. Politics, education, uh, health, entertainment, cultural topics of the day. Again, the list could go on and on and on. But how we handle those things can determine whether we serve well or in in a worldly way. Worldliness can be being inordinately preoccupied or concerned with the things of the world. You might not be loving the world, but you might be overly scared of the world. When we approach these things with a gospel mindset, trusting in Christ, knowing that these things, the things that are on the news, the things that we're dealing with are not ultimate, we hold them with grace, then we can handle them well. When we fight these temporal things without the gospel, we treat them as ultimate and we respond out of fear and oftentimes anger. Legalism enters in when we take these things that might be good things, issues of conscience and liberty, and turn them into issues of righteousness. Sometimes that can be done in a variety of ways itself. You know, it can be, why don't you care about this topic as much as I care about? This is the ultimate topic and you're not doing anything about it. And so we try to bind the conscience of someone else 
who might be serving in another area. It might just be simply saying that this is the ultimate issue of our day. And that's not to say that some of the things that we're dealing with aren't important. They are important. Things can be important without being ultimate. What motivates our heart to serve in these various arenas that we believe are important? If it's love and faith, then we will serve well in those areas. If it's because we feel those things are ultimate issues and we serve those areas because we hate the opposition, then we're just fighting with worldliness. How we fight will reveal our hope and joy. And if we're fighting worldliness with worldliness, we're finding that our hope and joy are in this temporal world. We're not living in light of Christ's promises. We won't overcome these things by shaking our fists at them. Gospel-motivated serving is key. And that is why John grounds this section that we're looking at first in these gospel realities. Because if we don't have these gospel promises, then we can't serve well in those areas. Because our weapons are not of this world. Our weapons are not of the flesh. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. The believer's hope and joy are found in the saving work of Christ, his sovereign rule, and the promise that the true realities of a heavenly kingdom are coming. What we have in this world, the here and now, is not our hope. We can be so concerned about fixing this world, often at any cost, that we forget that this world is passing. Jesus is scrapping it. Let's key in here on verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. How do we know all of these things are temporary? Well, because that's what John is saying. The world is passing away along with all its desires. The illusion of worldliness is that it makes all that is here and now seem like it's ultimate, like it's permanent, like this is the thing that is final, that this world is all there is. The Christian can look at this world, all it has to offer, its systems, the way that it works, and recognize that it's passing away. It's temporary. All possessions, pleasures, and kingdoms that are not uh, of God's kingdom are going to be burnt up. The world's desires are passing. The things that are contrary to the will of God, the things that appeal to our flesh, they're all going to be burned up. We have a guarantee that the problems and issues that this current world throws at us will not be victorious. So don't fight like the world. Absolutely serve in the areas that are on your heart, but do it in love. Do it in faith. Do it with grace and with hope set before you. So in conclusion, I kind of want to bring this all home to us this morning with great hope. How do we fight? How do we not give in to the love of the world? Well, we look to Christ, who is ultimate. He is victorious, and he will return triumphant to set up his kingdom. And so anchor yourself in these gospel realities that John has written of. 
And I want to give you two additional passages, also written by John, that give us great hope, which we can anchor into as well. John sixteen thirty three. I quote this one often. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will, you will, you will have tribulation. It's an odd promise. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And so there will be tribulation, there will be trouble, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. That is the world system. So you don't need to overcome the world systems because Jesus has already done so. And so you can serve knowing that Jesus is triumphant. He's victorious. And then Revelation twelve ten through 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, And by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So the dragon, two references to dragons in one day. Our great enemy, Satan, is thrown down. But notice the believers that John is referring to here, he's speaking about in Revelation. They don't do this through fighting with worldly methods. Fearing that somehow the enemy is ultimate or even that he has even the slightest chance of victory. What does he say? They conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. This is shorthand for the gospel. This is the testimony that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the precious Lamb of God, reigns victoriously. This is their testimony that Jesus has overcome. And it also says that they loved not their lives even unto death. They didn't think that this present world was all there is. They weren't clinging to this fallen world as our final home. Fearing what was about to be taken. They looked to the one who is our great hope. And they were anchored in his victory. And so this morning I just want to encourage you to look to Jesus, our overcomer. And let the love of God fill your heart. So there just simply is no room for the love of temporary things, transient things the things of the fallen world in your heart. Let's pray. Father, the heavens are yours and all their hosts. The earth is yours and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. In your hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are yours also. The sea is yours for you made it and your hands formed the dry land. Every beast of the forest is yours, and the cattle on a thousand hills. You are therefore a great God and great king above all gods. In your hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Your dominion is an everlasting dominion, and your kingdom endures from generation to generation. You do according to your will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay your hand or say to you, what have you done or why have you done that? We thank you that our sins are forgiven for your son's namesake. That we know you who is from the beginning and that we know you as father. We thank you that because we are in Christ, we are strong. And that your word abides in us and that through Christ we have overcome the evil one. We bless bless you that you have fixed a day on which you will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom you have appointed. And of this you have given assurance to all 
by raising him from the dead. We thank you for the victory of Christ. We thank you that this world is indeed passing and our truer home awaits. Encourage us, Lord, in the gospel. And it's in the victorious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.